The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Nice to see everybody tonight. So tonight will be the last of a series of talks reviewing the basic elements in sitting meditation practice. And fortunately for us, I think, understanding how to do sitting meditation is really better and better understanding how to be in the world, how to live our lives. So it's good not to see them as two distinct things. Of course, they are unique. You know, when we're sitting, in a sense, we're creating the optimal environment to train the mind. But we're training the mind in a, in a direction then we're hoping that will manifest all day long. And it's just the difference between meditation practice and the rest of our day is that it's easier in the structure of meditation practice to do the training. We're just more distracted and more overwhelmed you know, in the, in the day. And so it's not so easy to train. When we get insulted or um, bump up against things in life, moment after moment, different habit patterns are getting triggered. And it's almost like layers of conditioning, layers of habit energy. And it's just, it's hard to create new habits when we're basically under the influence of existing habits, habits with a lot of momentum being swept away by them swept away by fear, swept away by greed, and all the different flavors of our self-centered habits. So, you know, when we create an opportunity to meditate at home, at the center, we specifically are looking for an environment that's not going to trigger a lot of our habit energy. Or the habit energy that's getting triggered is the habit energy of calm, the habit energy of safety, feeling safe feeling energized or inspired. So these habit energies are okay. <laughs> Quite useful, actually. So those of you who've been coming for a while know I've, I've been breaking down the practice into four elements just to help us kind of develop more skill in each of the four areas. So as you noticed in the guided part tonight, in the, at the very beginning, I invited us all to take some time to practice settling down. So to become, even if we're already good at it, we can become conscious of settling down. So we're lost in our thoughts, lost in all the worldly thises and thats. And then we realize it, or somehow we remember this other possibility of coming into the moment, or coming into the body, but basically understanding that is really, it's quite true. I mean, it, it, I know it sounds a bit provocative, but there are two realities. There, there is the reality of our thoughts about things, and then there's the present moment. Now, of course, when we're lost in our thoughts about things, that's also happening in the present moment. But the difference is we're not aware this is how it is now when we're lost in thought. I mean, not often. Think about a dream. Think about a obsessive, obsessive thinking. You know, are you aware this is how it is? We're not. We're caught in the momentum. Or if we understand that this is how it is, it's more like a self-justification, like we're justifying that I'm doing this, which is just putting what we're doing in the context where it makes sense or we put it in the context where we hate ourselves. But it's just another story. You know, it's a, one story about another story. And being in the present moment, we understand that thoughts are just thoughts here in the mind, in the present moment. Sensations are just sensations here in the body in the present moment. So it's a kind of deconstruction. It's an understanding that the primary element isn't our life situation which is normally what we're living with, is like what's really going on here is there's Mark who's got all these things to do and that's sort of the primary thing. But in, from a practice point of view, the primary thing is 
there is the space of the present moment in which things are being known. So there are two different ways of understanding reality. And so these four elements all have to do with that sort of trans transformation or transformation of view, I guess we could say. So settling down is just the beginning of just realizing that there's another reality. Oh, I can understand that I can actually experience. I can even um, rest in this reality that there are sensations being known, thoughts being known, sounds being known, all of these objects, all these things being known here in the moment. So there's some sense. So the whole point of meditation is to engage the settling down. We really need to make it initially in our practice. We don't want to like start doing, quote unquote, the meditation technique until we really somehow uh, rediscovered ourselves in the true sense, rediscovered our life. Oh yeah, oh yeah, it's like this, to kind of land in the body. So, for example, we do that deep breathing often at the beginning of our guided sits, you know, where we take two, three, four minutes and consciously, slowly fill and empty the lungs. Because just the pace of that is so different than the pace of our obsessive, self-centered thinking that it really helps to break the cycle. And we just start in moments landing in the experience of the body sitting, in the experience of breathing deeply, in the experience of the here and now. And there are many ways to kind of develop this art of settling or coming back to the present moment. And you see how useful this would be throughout the day. So it's not just something we do for three minutes at the beginning of a set. But all day long, it would be really wonderful if it occurred to the mind to drop in, sort of to drop out of the universe of our thoughts and our stories about our life situation to that that's just something being known and sensations are being known and it's all being known here or now do you see that now like it would be good to even just play with that right now like how you can how our minds can get caught up in either thoughts about the talk or thoughts about what's going on in your life. And then if you're prompted, if we're prompted, you know, when it comes right down to it, it's just this, you know, mind-body experience right now. And it's a sort of spiritual soberness when we come out of the thoughts, even thoughts about Buddhism or thoughts about meditation into the raw, more direct experience of the body and the sort of more direct, immediate experience of emotion, the kind of subtle, visceral shape of the heart, shape of the mind, qualities of the mind and heart. It's an acquired taste to get used to that kind of rawness or simplicity. It's not jazzy or scary like our thoughts often create, you know, when we worry about something or want something, life feels charged. So we, we have to develop this skill, the art of settling, of dropping out of our thoughts about our life situation or about this and that. And then when we get a break, when we break that cycle of self-centered thinking for a moment or moments, then we want to take that opportunity to recall, to bring to mind what seems to be of real value to us in that moment. So we don't want to go back to our life situation because then we'll think about, well, I'd like, you know, I'd like a lot of money in the bank in case something happens, I'd be able to take care of myself or my loved ones, or I want to be really healthy. So then we're back in our life situation. But from the point of view of being present, in that rawness of the present moment, the rawness, directness of the body experience, the mind. Really, well, the only thing of value in terms of like what would be our aspiration, the only thing of value is to be at ease with it. Like, 
Because what we notice as we come into the present moment in a more direct way, the most obvious thing is how pervasive our habits of struggling with things are. Pushing and pulling, denying, trying to fix. And just what a burden that is. That's what becomes really obvious. So when we articulate in our mind, in our heart, what our intention or our aspiration for practice is, it's coming from a really deep, authentic place. And this desire for happiness, but now it's coming from a place of being really clear and connected, is like uh, the primal spiritual impulse. Wanting to be happy is not a bad thing. What gets uh, neurotic about wanting to be happy is uh, we're sort of dealing with that primal wish to be happy on a very superficial level. So in order for that desire to be meaningful, we have to be connected to the way it is. We, We need that desire to be born out of the immediacy or the intimacy of our actual experience. Because then something more wise will come out of it instead of like, you know, I want to be happy, so I want to be at home watching TV. Not that that's bad, but, you know, all of us can quickly discern how limited that would be in terms of stable happiness. Instead of that, it's much more like this understanding, this intuition, this wish, this deep intuitive wish not to have to struggle, not to have to contract. And we want to, you know, as best we can, because some days the mind's just going to be in a fog and it won't be so easy to settle down and to connect with our deepest, deeper aspiration. But we want to practice it because we'll get better at it. And then our meditation practice, we want to come out of having connected to some deeper intention. Otherwise, we're going to be either wasting our time or actually cultivating unwholesome qualities when we're meditating. We'll just be reinforcing unwholesome qualities in a more concentrated way (laughs) because we won't have so many distractions. So, you know, we'll start to worry about something, for example, but there's nothing around us to interrupt our worrying. So we can kind of get even more tight and narrow in the worrying. Or we can develop a fantasy and get even more contracted in the fantasy. So it's really important, not just once at the beginning of the set, but whenever you need to, to start over. Start over with the settling. Take a few deep breaths. There's nothing wrong in the middle of the set to completely start over. I mean, if your mind has gotten caught up in a lot of worldly activity, like it does throughout the day, then in a sense you actually are starting your meditation over. So start it over. Okay, settle down. You know, and you, you can open your eyes, you can take a couple deep breaths as if you were beginning all over again. Oh yeah, just this. This is a moment being known. Body, mind being known. Oh yeah. So what's relevant? What's really meaningful? What does this heart really want? It wants to be at ease. It wants to be loving, meaning not to have to push things away, but to be able to be inclusive. That's what love means, really. Love means being able to say yes. We could make a movie. What was it? Love means never having to say you're sorry. No, I guess the movie's title was Love Story. That was just a catchy line. That, that made a big splash when I was young. Some of you probably remember that movie. But we could say, you know, love means saying yes. That's what love means. Not that we're not going to respond, we're not going to say something, we're not going to do something. But love, a loving heart, is a wise, the the wise heart that understands that this is already the way that it is this moment. So we want our meditation training, the actual bulk of our meditation experience, to come out of something that's different than our sort of neurotic thoughts about our life situation, about what we want as an individual. 
Now, I'm not saying that we should completely ignore what we want as individuals, but just that's not part of our meditation practice. So during your life, if you feel like it would be really useful to be in an intimate relationship or to be getting out of your intimate relationship, you know, then, or into a job or out of a job, then you do what you can do to sort of see if your inclination is actually skillful. So you engage your life, you make choices. But in meditation practice and in this deeper aspect of life, the spiritual life that sort of runs parallel to our, what we could call our conventional life, they're not, it's not like they happen at different moments. They're both happening at the same time. And they actually don't contradict each other. But if we don't do the spiritual life, our conventional life gets really neurotic. That's the problem. So we need to develop this. We're already doing this. And we'll transform this by developing this as a parallel life. So that as we're making those choices about our individual life situation, all along we're settling down. We're remembering this deep intention to be free, to be accepting, to understand that it's already this way. So relax. Relax with this, because it's already this way. It's like, you know, when we start to feel pain or start to notice a painful memory or start to imagine something we like, we start to contract. But what does that do? What's the value in that contraction? So then the meditation practice, the third part, the basic training, it becomes really obvious. If if the heart wishes to be at ease with conditions as they are, to be free of struggle, to be loving and inclusive, well, then we practice that. So when we're breathing in, that's what we're practicing. When we're breathing out, that's when we're practicing. When we're hearing something, we're practicing being intimate and leaving things alone, letting things be, releasing anything extra. When we have a memory, we let that memory arise in the mind as it actually is, without turning it into something personal. That's what's extra is when we keep turning whatever experience that's predominant in the moment, including our breath, something as ordinary as the breath, we keep turning it into something personal, something in terms of our life situation. We kind of make it a chapter in our life situation book, novel. Maybe just a sentence, <laughs> if it's just an in-breath. <laughs> you know. And then I breathed in. <laughs> Now I'm breathing. You know, it's like we don't need that to be knowing the in-breath. We don't need the conception, I'm breathing in. Does that make at least intellectual sense that the thought, I'm breathing in, is completely unnecessary in the experience of knowing the in-breath and knowing the out-breath? And the trouble is, as soon as we have the thought, I'm breathing in, then there's going to immediately be a thought, am I doing it right? You know? Oh, I'm not supposed to be controlling the breath. I should, it should be more released. You know, it's too shallow. There's all this, you know, or the person next to me's breath is too loud, or, you know, their breath seems so smooth. And I mean, all kinds of neurotic activity begins as soon as we add something extra. So the basic technique, whatever, whatever specific technique you use, it always comes down to this. And the Buddha was very clear, you know, when people would ask him about different spiritual teachers and whether what they taught worked, he would always say, well, if they're teaching about not clinging, it will work. And if they're not teaching about not clinging, it won't work. If a spiritual tradition includes the central value in learning, training the heart not to cling, not to add extra, then it will be an authentic, useful path. And if it doesn't include that, it's not useful, or ultimately not useful. And so this is the basic training, you know, and like I mentioned a moment ago, there are many ways to activate this training, to kind of create a container to remember to do this. And what I've been suggesting the last few weeks, it's just one way. But often working with the breath is nice, because the breath, of course, is like everything, is a natural phenomenon. It doesn't need to be consciously controlled. You know, it just happens on its own. 
I mean, we can consciously control the breath, but we don't need to. And the more relaxed and calm the mind becomes and the body becomes, the more subtle the breath becomes. So that has a neat, uh, it sort of supports the practice in a neat way because as we get more relaxed and calm, it's harder to know the breath because the breath becomes more subtle. So we have to listen. The mind, it's sort of inviting over and over again, inviting a more sensitive, refined, concentrated attention because the breath is getting more and more subtle. So there are a lot of nice elements about working with the breath. And the more we get this sort of quality of being intimate with the breath and releasing anything extra, so allowing the breath to flow naturally, to move as it's moving, then when the mind gets disturbed by some thought, some emotion, then that refined attention will know the thought. Because where is that thought or that disturbing memory going to arise? It's going to arise in the space of the present moment, which is where we've been watching the breath, because that's where the breath is arising. So it's not even like we have to, I mean, it feels this way initially, but ultimately it's not this way. It's not like we have the attention on the breath, and then we notice there's a distraction. That actually the more we're refining the attention with the present moment attention with the breathing process, the more there's only one thing, which is the present moment. The breath is being known in the present moment. And this is a non-exclusive attention. Even though we're, in a sense, focused on the breath, the mind isn't pushing anything out of the space of the present moment. So everything else is being known. It's just that the breath, the sensations of the breath, is in the foreground. But everything else is there in the background. So what happens is when a distraction is there, well, because of our training, the breath is there in the foreground doing its dance, coming in, going out, coming in, going out. And there are a lot of different distractions in the background, people moving, thoughts coming and going, uh, emotions flowing on and on, all kinds of things happening there, always happening. And it's not a problem. And then when something gets really strong, then quite naturally, without us having to do anything, the breath will shift into the background and whatever is disturbing or exciting or drawing the attention, of course, by definition, is in the foreground now. And the mind simply understands. Oh, it's like this. And the refinement of attention that we had with the breath and that we developed with the breath is now knowing this other object, whether it's a memory or a disturbing, interesting sound or exciting fantasy. Now it's being seen, but it's being seen with this mind that's capable, heart, that's capable of being interested, clear, intimate, but not confused, not needing to put the experience that's being known in the context, in the story of my life, in terms of my life, in terms of what I like or what I don't like. It's just seen as a Tanisro Bhikkhu says, it's seen in a phenomenological way, or as the Buddha says, in and of itself. The thought in and of itself, a feeling in and of itself, a sensation in and of itself, not in terms of the world. So no need, doesn't mean there won't be concepts. So if I'm hearing a sound, in the foreground will be the actual direct, immediate experience of sound sensation. But in the background maybe, oh, that's a big truck. But that, that thought won't be confusing the mind. The, in, the, in other words, the mind won't proliferate on it, the thoughts. Oh, that's a big truck. Why is there a big truck this time of night? We never should have bought a property on a busy street. What were we thinking? You know, and on and on like this. It can keep going on for days. So, but when the mind's refined... It won't, because what will be in the foreground is just that immediacy of sound, which is already beginning to dissolve as soon as it's being known, because something else is arising and something else is arising. And that process, that immediacy of experience, is so amazing that when the mind is really refined in this way, it doesn't need to create a lot of thought in terms of my life, in terms of this and that. 
it's just enough. It's a kind of joy just to be present in that immediate, clear, refined way. And so this is the basic training and practice. And we just start with something ordinary like the sensations of the body sitting. Or even a more refined object, of course, is the movement of the breath in the body. Or even auditory experiences can be a really fine meditation object. Not any, not necessarily particular sounds, but just the cacophony of the play of sounds. So it's not even that the mind is looking to hear particular sounds. Just like, you know, when we're looking, I can fixate my visual, uh, my vision on a particular form or color. But we can also have like a soft gaze where we're not looking at anything in particular. And so we're equally aware of the periphery and what's in front, colors and shapes, light and darkness. And we're not, the mind then isn't uh, so compelled to identify the visual objects. We can have that same experience with hearing and with the sensations of the body. So we don't need to say, oh, me. You know, that's happening in my knee, which is connected to my thigh bone. <laughs> and we're kind of like, oh yeah, which is my body, which had this injury. And then, then it's in terms of my life situation. But the sensations themselves, they don't need that extra stuff. We can just know sensation, know the movement of sensation, know the intensity, know the play, the dance. So the particular technique we've been using the last few weeks is to actually use a meditation word. I didn't suggest it tonight, but you don't need to do that, but you can. It can be really useful to have a word that you repeat in your mind as you're breathing in. So you're you're basically activating or reminding the heart about one of these wholesome qualities like the capacity to connect. So, for example, when you're breathing in, you can just repeat that word in your mind, connecting, or just this or opening, or any word that for your mind invites it to be more open, more vulnerable, more aware that it's like this. Even the word knowing, knowing this, I've used in the past and I really like. So that's one quality we'd like to activate. So you can use a meditation word with the breath. You're not controlling the breath, you're just noticing, you're knowing the breath coming in, and then you're just reminding the heart to connect with it or to open to it or allow it to be. And then the exhalation is really emphasizing or inviting in that other related quality of not adding anything extra. So I've been using the word releasing, like releasing the idea is to release anything that's extra, like letting knowing of what's happening in the moment be enough and release everything else. Any ideas about what's happening, any need or impulse to want to control the experience, connecting, releasing. And the nice thing about using meditation words like this, at least at times in our sitting practice, is it it helps, it's like uh, giving the mind some instruction. It's helping to dig a groove because the mind's habit will be to go back to that worldly view because that's what we do all day long. So it's the big rut. The mind's going to fall into that rut. It's going to start relating to experience in terms of me and you and this and that and what I like and what I don't like. So having some, you know, giving the thinking mind something to do to keep it out of trouble can be very useful. Even something as simple as noting the in and out can be useful. But to, to make the word actually support the qualities that would be useful in the moment can be quite helpful. So experiment with that. And then the last part of practice, we have settling, remembering the intention, then the bulk of practice is this training to be intimate and let that be enough. To know things as they actually are phenomenologically, just in their sort of elemental nature, and that's enough. That's the bulk of the training. And to work with particular anchors that are easy, like the sensations of the body, the breath, sounds, or the three really easy ones to work with. There are many others, of course. And then, of course, any distractions that come up. 
when they're strong, you work with those as your meditation object. Until they're no longer strong, taking the attention, and then you go back to your anchor that you've chosen, that you've learned to like, to become a good friend. And then the last part, and this can be the whole sit sometimes, and other times it may be just a minute or two. But it's when you feel like there's a lot of momentum, the mind is naturally coming into this spiritual view as opposed to a worldly view. Then you want to drop the sense of being a meditator. I just allow the practice to be very simple, like we did for the last two minutes tonight. It's like we're recognizing that knowing is a natural function of the heart. We don't need, Mark doesn't need to make an effort to be knowing. Knowing is the default, basically, of the mind. When the mind isn't obscured or lost in thought, it simply knows things as they are. That's what it does. And so when we can practice that way, we want to practice in the most simple way. And in fact, the whole development of practice is going from using gross tools, gross mental skills to be present, to less gross mental skills, to basically no personal involvement in the practice. So you'd call this the non-meditation meditation. You're not trying to be a meditator. You're not trying to be special. You're not trying to see things as they are. You're just trusting the mind. You could say trusting the natural mind, trusting the simple mind to do what it does. So if you want to say anything, we'd say we're practicing trusting the heart. And it's good, even as a rank beginner, to spend at least a couple minutes doing this at the end of your sits. So even if you're only sitting for 15 minutes, it's all the time you have one day. Still, leave a few seconds at the end. And you don't need to do it this way, but you can open your eyes as a way of distinguishing this, this shift in practice from being the meditator, practicing connecting and releasing anything extra, to being a free, loving, natural human being, not having to hold it up, you know, not having to do it, <laughs> but just to let the natural heart do what it does, which is to know and let things be. The not letting things be is what's extra. So when we're really natural, we don't do anything. The heart doesn't mess with what's being known. But don't think that means you're going to be passive. That's misunderstanding that fourth part of practice. It's just the opposite. The whole system, body-mind system, is very alive and responsive in the world. So you don't want to just practice this at the end of meditation for a minute or two, but you also want to experiment with it in life. Like a lot of it, for me, the trigger is like when I feel like I've got a lot to do and my life feels heavy, then I, I sometimes just like go shortcut, I skip all the middle parts and I go right to that end, which is to just let my life carry itself forward. So whatever I say is what I'm saying. Whatever I'm doing is what I'm doing. Because we think, you know, like we got a pile of work on our desk, and we think, I've got to make myself do it. Well, actually, we don't. The, all the sort of, the system is complete, you know. And we say, well, if I, if, I, if I don't make myself do it, I won't do it. Well, see. You know, at some point, fear will arise, and you'll find yourself doing it. The idea that you have to make yourself do it is completely extra and unnecessary. But, you know, we're afraid. We're afraid to let causes and conditions operate because we're so in the habit of being in the driver's seat. You know, we don't want to let our life be natural and free. So that's this fourth part. Now, like I mentioned, I want to just repeat it again, and then I'll open it up for discussion. You can't, you can't fake this. So that's why it's generally just a short period of time. You're just playing with it. You're exploring it. You're testing the waters out. But don't, like, try to be free. Because, <laughs> you know, of course, it's kind of it's silly. Because that's a burden to try to be free. 
You're just looking to see if there is freedom. Can this heart be free in this moment? Is there enough confidence, enough faith to just let life unfold? No, of course, it's relatively simple when you're just sitting in your bedroom on your meditation chair or cushion in a quiet corner. You know, it's relatively easy then. Right? That's what I mentioned about the meditation experiences, where we do it where it's easy so that we can experiment where it's not so easy, where there are more triggers. So I'll leave it here. It'd be nice to hear from people what you've been learning in your practice, questions about the instructions. Yeah, Bill. Uh, today I was with a poet and I was talking, I'm looking forward to going to the meditation center today. And so he's, he's you know, practicing meditation and he's talking about the importance of the mind and the Just for you. They're just, I would just call them sort of Dharma stories or spiritual stories. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're very, it's told in very uh, many different ways, but pretty much the same themes that you, you picked up on. Joseph Goldstein has a kind of a exaggerated version of the first story where somebody throws you out of a plane, you know, and you freak out, of course, because you don't have a parachute. Freaking out, freaking out, until you realize there's no ground to hit. And then it's not a problem. And so it's a kind of another way of inviting, like, well, so far, no problem. Like, we imagine not being in control will be a problem. But we haven't actually checked it out. And so that's really the fourth part of practice, is that's really like we're tuning into the freefall. Because when we come back to the immediacy of experience, it is a freefall. Because it's the conceptualizing, it's turning our experience into thoughts that gives it a sense of ground. Oh, yeah, I'm Mark. You know, when we name ourselves or we name, this is Common Ground, I'm here on Wednesday night, it gives it more solidity than there's actually here. So when we actually come into the present moment, it has that fluid, groundless quality. That's kind of a barometer for a practice. The more groundless it feels, the more immediate, more intimate the awareness is. And then it's really about cultivating confidence in the groundlessness learning to trust it. And that really is pointing to that fourth stage in practice. So when we can trust it, that's enough. If we try to practice, you know, make it a self-centered practice at that point, it's actually getting in the way. But other times, we really need that sense that I need to practice connecting. I need to practice releasing anything extra. Thanks, Bill, for sharing those. Yeah, Tom. Is it Tom? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very, uh, what you were talking about tonight, very paradoxical, I think is the word, that, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very subtle. There's, there's, we talk about this a lot, and um, I've been practicing for about a year, and it's satisfying, resonant, makes all the sense, and then, and then there's these moments where you have to go out there, you know, where, and how to be skillful. And there's a question that I've been wanting to ask. Uh, and I just kind of, but I, I, I feel myself in the question saying, and I can almost, and I've kind of held on to the question for a while just to sort of see what it was like. Mm-hmm. Because I'm thinking, well, this is going to say this. <laughs> why, why go there? But the question is, is this, because it brings up a lot of like, real points of like, that through my mom, she's starting to sort of slip. And I had, you know, you can hold it. Tells a lot of stories over and over, and it, it, there's a part of me that's just, just you know, just 
Well, I think one place to start is to, as many moments as you can, to land in the swirl that's probably going on in your mind and heart. Just to land there, to be really honest. Oh, it's like this. And to, to land with, you know, with this practice. So we're not landing judging. We're just trying to see what's moving in the mind and the heart in the situation of being around your mind mom when she, you know, as her mind begins to fall apart, as all things do. And uh, you, we need, you know, part of landing is we're making peace. So it's okay. It's okay for the mind to be judging our mom. It's okay for us, for the thought to arise, I don't want to be here. It's even okay for the thought to arise, it will be a relief when she dies. Not that, I mean, the, the thing we have to understand is, Every thought, every sensation has a right to be there. And we don't need to feel like we have to control every thought. Of course, being around a parent who's dying or a parent who's becoming, uh, you know, has Alzheimer's, of course that's difficult for us. You know, just because we realize that it's difficult for us doesn't mean we don't care about them anymore. Doesn't, just because life is a burden for us doesn't mean we don't love and have compassion. To be in denial of all of the different kinds of thoughts we have is disconnecting from life. It's a kind of inner violence. So we want to be really honest and we want to create the space where whatever thought is arising is seen as a thought that is arising without feeling the impulse to judge. That's that exhalation part. We're releasing the impulse to have to control our thoughts. We're releasing the impulse to need to judge our thoughts in terms of good and bad. It's just a thought. As a thought, we don't need to sort of pin it to me. See, when you think it's your thought, then you don't want to have that thought because you want to be a good son. But when you see it that it's just a thought, then it, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, need to uh, be held with any weight. It's just a thought. It's just a thought. And the thoughts tend to repeat. Then we might be interested in, like, from what they're being born. Maybe there's an underlying feeling. And we look at that. And we accept that. We become intimate with that. This would be great work, you know, just to, in those times when you're around your mother, or when you're even thinking about your mother, like you're meditating, but the thought of your mom comes up, to just in, let go of the mindfulness of the breath and invite yourself to be mindful of the movement of feeling and emotion and thought. And uh, without, you know, really like releasing the judgment, releasing the control, and just let things move. Yeah. And that way, actually, when we are with them, our parents or any difficult situation, we can be so much more intimate if we do this work. If we don't do this work, we, we may actually physically be there, but we won't really be there because we'll be too busy trying to control what's going on in our heart and mind. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, Tom. Judy, did you have a thought? No. Oh, I think that last step is, is really uh, helpful because it's almost like for me, if I bring that last step a little bit into the third step, you know what I mean? I think that would help my third step. <laughs> Just like, I don't have to control this process. Yeah. And in a way, you can connect the third step with the second step, remembering your intention. Because especially the more you practice, the more you have insight in your practice, the more that remembering the intention not to struggle, like using Bill's example again, that free fall, the groundlessness, we can just like take a shortcut and go right to sort of 
dropping in, right from the settling, dropping in, remembering the intention to be free, right into releasing, like letting life do its thing. Letting this personality, mind, body, life situation, these causes and conditions, letting them naturally express themselves. Which also means, by the way, just to remind us, so we don't think we're kind of being passive or giving up, it also means allowing wisdom, whatever wisdom there is in the mind or in the personality, allowing it to naturally manifest in terms of choices. And unfortunately, it also means whatever ignorance there is, is also going to manifest. Because, you know, the mind, the personality is a dance, a play of different habits. Some of those habits have been formed from a really narrow point of view, and we call that ignorance. And some of our habits have arisen, have been sort of constructed at a really broad point of view, and we call that wisdom. And they're always sort of playing. It's just a matter of which habits in a particular moment have more momentum. And to be aware of that and to be free in that actually uh, supports the most efficient learning, you know, in terms of becoming a healthier, happier, more skillful human being. So it's not like we even somehow, when we're practicing in that fourth step, we're not interested in becoming more skillful. It's just we've discovered the most efficient way to become, to learn, to become more skillful, is getting out of the way. Letting mistakes be made, being aware of that. Letting successes happen, being aware of that. Yeah, that's the key. Yeah, it's you can't practice that way unless there's enough faith or trust. Yeah, thanks, Judy. Other thoughts people have? I have a question. Sure. I forgot your name. Jessica. Jessica. Isn't the desire to remain in that skillful state of awareness, is the desire of that somehow problematic? I just sometimes find myself, for me, it's not a sober feeling to be in that state. It's pleasurable and intensely blissful, almost to the point that sometimes I think to myself, is it some sort of addiction to a state of awareness? But is that problematic? It hasn't been like in my life mm-hmm. to this point, but I, I just wonder if the desire for it somehow... Maybe that harkens to my fundamental Christian upbringing where desire was seen as Satan's whispering. But well, is there somebody desiring? Not while there. Yeah. No, but while not there, I suppose, yeah. So yeah. It seems that way. Yeah, so then, then work with that. Like when it, when it feels solid, then wake up to that. You know, oh, it's like this. That solid being, the solid person who wants to get back there. Then look at it. But in the midst, see, one of the shadows of the fourth style of practice, of just trusting, is we doubt it. We think it's bad. We think we're not doing enough. I should try harder. It's not right to just let things be, you know. And it's sort of like we, we've gotten attached to sort of being good, being the one who's good, being the one who's doing what they're supposed to do. And that habit sort of carries over. So sometimes what might what what you might be describing is just teasing that out, like really trusting you don't need to manifest as the person trying to be good, trying, needing, desiring. That's all extra here. But if you're here, you know, you know, in your life, wanting that back. Just remember the first step is to settle into, so if we are a caught up, deluded human being, the first step is to settle into that experience. The gateway to everything good is to come into the moment as it actually is. We don't, wanting to go to something special is its own kind of hell. Uh, Manifesting the heart that can open to how things actually are now is a gateway to release. So the answer is always to use the present moment. It's always the right place. It's always the right experience. Because it doesn't, what we're opening to is something that's not conditional. So 
the particulars of the present moment never really matter. So even if we're really caught up in a despairing state, the place we want to work is with that despairing state, not kind of, oh, but you know, three weeks ago I felt so free and easy. And to kind of do that is to create a separation, you know, that has all kinds of implications. But to have, to, to be able to manifest the heart that's not afraid of despair, not afraid of dropping in and relaxing and seeing clearly, well, right then, that's pretty liberating. It's pretty liberating uh, to realize a heart that's not afraid of despair. Thanks, Jessica. Uh, maybe time for one more question or comment, if anybody has anything they'd like to share. Yeah, done. Yeah. Well, you should just experiment and see what works for you. You know, it partly depends on the kind of mind that that idea is born out of. So if you're feeling a lot of like, I'm bad, and I, I want to be good, you know, I'm going to give myself a technique, then, you know, then it tends to set us up for failure and for more judgment, self-judgment, self-hatred. But if it's if it's, it has a more playful and loving quality where you just... You feel like something's alive in you and you just want to support its momentum. Yeah, there are all kinds of little tricks like that. You can write yourself a little note and just put it in your pocket. So every time you put your hand in your pocket, you feel it, you know, or whatever. It could be a little stone that reminds you. Or you could, you know, now with electronic devices, you can do all kinds of things <laughs> to remind yourself and to bother other people around you. <laughs> you know, or putting things on our computer screens or programming things on our desktop to be reminded. I mean, there are a lot of little tricks. But generally, tricks work for a while, and then the mind learns how to ignore them. You know, that's generally how it is. Even people like who are regular participants at a place like Common Ground or have a really regular sitting practice, our conventional mind can find ways to defend itself against anything. You could be on a retreat in the most spiritual place with the most enlightened teacher, you know, you're there alone with her, right? One-to-one -one situation, and still be completely deluded. So our minds can create, you know, walls to keep us apart from the present moment, you know. <laughs> I think it's time for us to end. <laughs> or begin. So let's just take a few breaths together, let go of the words. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.